go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 3 this morning. This is the second part of our consideration of the fall, and this is the second sermon that we're going to consider these verses this morning that we started last week. Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to begin this morning in verse 8, and we're going to read down to verse 24, and you'll find that on page 2 if you're using the church Bible, and as usual, I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy open and reading along with me this morning and attentive to what the Lord would say to us as we come to the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's pray, and then we will look at Genesis 3, 8 through 24. Father, again, we turn our hearts to you, and as we've just heard played on the piano, we acknowledge that we need you every hour. We acknowledge, our God, that we need you for life and for breath and for all things, and How much more do we need you to do us spiritually good and to do our souls spiritually good? And we need you to cause Christ to be formed in us. We need you to open our ears and to open the eyes of our hearts that we might hear and see the wonderful things that you have revealed about your son to us. And so, Father, we pray that you would do that great heart work in us by grace this morning. We pray that you would make us to feel our need for Christ. We pray that you would make us to see him who has promised, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 3, beginning in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and perhaps a better translation is he shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of Of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way 
to the tree of life. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, in his masterful collection of essays, C.S. Lewis, uh, which would later be renamed God in the Dock or God in uh, the, the, um, the Seat of Judgment in the Court as if God was on trial, wrote these words, the ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. Now, well, I might quibble a bit with Lewis's point because I think ever since the fall, man has put God in the dock. And I don't think that's just a problem of modern man. I do think that Lewis is right that in our day, the great problem is that intellectually and morally, men and women all over the face of this earth are trying to put God in the dock. They are trying to determine whether the true and living God will fit within their paradigm of what God ought to be and how God ought to act and what God ought to do. And they are setting themselves up and we all do this by nature. We set ourselves up as the judge and we put God under trial and we make determinations and we say, I don't think God's like that. And I don't know how a good God could do that. And the Bible reverses it. And it's why Genesis 3 is so important. It's why the verses we're looking at right now are arguably the most important verses in the totality of God's revelation because in Genesis 3, man is in the dock and God is the judge over all the earth. God who created man in a world that was full of his goodness and beauty and bounty. God who gave man purpose. God who entered into covenant with man and gave him a goal and set eternity before him and said, there's something higher for you to enter into. God who said to Adam, Come, my son, and enter into that Sabbath rest and delight in all that I've made and work the ground and cultivate it and turn the world into the garden, expand the garden out so that the world becomes a tabernacle and a temple in which I dwell with you and with your wife and with all your offspring. And, and it will be a world full of image bearers. It will be a world full of God worshipers and God honoring, God loving creatures who are reflecting the glory of God. And Adam and Eve, as we've seen, have exchanged the glory of God for the creation. They've set themselves up as God. They've said, I will determine. I will be God. I will make the determination that if what God has said is true or if it's not true, I will put myself in the place of God. I will be like God. And no sooner did Adam and Eve take and eat, they realized they were naked. The divine glory had been stripped their garments of righteousness had been removed and they sought to fix the problem and they sewed fig leaves together and then they heard the sound of God coming in the garden and they hid themselves and Adam and Eve had become everything unlike what God had designed them to be and you and I in Adam have become everything other than what God designed us to be. And that plays out in 10,000 different ways in our lives, in our workplace, in our homes, in our family relations, in our conversations, in our interactions, in the church of God. It plays out in 10,000 different ways that we are not what God created us to be. And if you ask anybody, if you ask anybody, is this world what it's supposed to be, whether they know the God of Scripture or not, 
everyone will tell you that this world is not what it's supposed to be. And no amount of effort or work to beautify it or to correct it with human effort and energy will ever make it what God determined for it to be. And for man to get back into a right relationship with God, Genesis is going to tell us that God had to initiate his gracious purposes in coming and rescuing and redeeming man. But in order to do that, God has to place the curse on man. He has to place the curse on disobedience. Paul will tell us, and we'll come to see this, that the wages of sin is death, that what sin deserves, the, the, the just payment for sin is death. It is the reversal of God's blessing. It is the undoing of all of God's covenant blessing. And yet, God's purpose, as we'll see here this morning, is to restore life after pronouncing those curses and to redeem a people for himself by his great mercy and grace. Notice, we're going to see three things this morning. First, we're going to consider the approach of God to man. Secondly, we're going to consider the curse that God pronounces over his creatures. And thirdly, we're going to consider the redemption, the approach, the curse, and the redemption. Well, notice what Moses says as he continues to reveal how it played out in the garden. He says that Adam and Eve, after they've sinned, after they've tried to fix themselves in self-righteousness, sewing fig leaves together to make themselves coverings, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. There is something so wrong with this picture. Before sin, if Adam and Eve had heard the Lord coming to fellowship with them, it would have been the most wonderful, delightful thing. They would have run into the arms of their heavenly father. They would have run to have fellowship with him. They would have, they would have exploded with joy over knowing that they could be in the presence of God. They would have delighted in the sound of the Lord God coming to them. They would have realized that this is the greatest good that their souls could ever experience. And now... They hide themselves. We talked last week that we hide ourselves in a thousand ways. We try to hide ourselves from God. We try to fix ourselves up. We try to clean ourselves up. We try to make ourselves look better. We try to perform better. We try to establish our own righteousness. We try to fix ourselves. And, and in so many ways, whether religiously or whether through exercise and diet and, and so many other things, we try to fix ourselves. And in that sense, we are trying to hide ourselves from God. We are trying to hide from the presence of God. We are saying, I don't need God, and God comes. And this is the big point. When God comes and makes his presence known to sinners, there is now terror in the conscience of men and women. Remember when the Apostle John sees that heavenly vision of Jesus in glory in Revelation 4, and he says that his face shone like the sun, and, and his hair was white like wool, and he was clothed with that priestly garment and a golden uh, belt around his waist, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, all those symbols of the things about Jesus and his glory and his greatness. And he said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. And he laid his hand on me and said, do not be afraid. And remember Peter on the boat. He had been out all night, his first encounter with Jesus, Peter's first encounter with Jesus. He was on the boat. They had been out all night. They had been fishing. They had caught nothing. Jesus said, cast the net over on this side. They pulled in an enormous cast, and Peter fell down at the feet of Jesus and said, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. 
There's something about being in the presence of God now as sinners that strikes terror into the hearts of men and women. And notice that Adam and Eve respond to the approach. They, see, they hear God coming. They know that he is coming to them. By the way, we'll see by the end of this that it's gracious when God comes. Even when God comes with conviction and even when the terror of God's law comes, there is a graciousness to that, that God is approaching man. God is coming purposely to man. God doesn't have to come to man. God could have wiped man out. He could have pronounced eternal damnation on Adam and Eve and the serpent and and wiped everything out. That would have been just. That would have been just. But God comes, and he comes, and he questions man. Notice verse 9, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, clearly, God doesn't need Adam to tell him where he is. And clearly, this question serves sort of as a double entendre. God is asking Adam not where he is physically, but Adam, do you know where you're at spiritually? Where are you, Adam? God is asking Adam, and he's asking all of us. He's asking everyone that descends from Adam, where are you? He is asking Adam, where have you put yourself spiritually? Where are you now? You know, when when psychiatrists and psychologists tell people that it's about self-actualization and it's about discovering yourself and becoming comfortable with yourself, what they're really saying is that all men are lost. Even the secular world in laboring to help people come to self-actualization is saying that people are lost, that they're far from the presence of God, that they're out in the wilderness of this world, that they have put themselves in the far country, that they are wanderers, that they have lost purpose, that they have lost design, that they have lost understanding. Genesis is going to tell us that man's mind was darkened. Adam and Eve are hiding behind the trees that God made. All their views of God are warped. All their views of God are wrong. We came from Adam. All of our views by nature are wrong. By nature, natural thoughts of God are wrong. And Adam and Eve hear God coming and they hide and God graciously approaches them and he says, where are you? By the way, just a side note, if you want to listen to one of the greatest sermons in church history, Martin Lloyd-Jones' sermon on this text, Where Art Thou? It's one of the greatest sermons ever preached, that God is every Lord's Day when his word is read and preached, he is saying to you and to me, where are you? Where are you? God is right now saying to you, where are you? He is putting you in the dock. And God is saying, where are you? Where are you in relationship to me? Do you know me? Have you returned to me? Have you repented of your sins? Notice that Adam has not repented. It seems on the surface that Adam has repented because Adam tells the Lord, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid and I hid myself. And on the surface, it seems that Adam is confessing his sin. It seems that Adam has heard God say, where are you? And he is seemingly saying to God, I have sinned against you, but he's not. He's actually blaming God. He's actually, he's saying, I was afraid because I heard you coming. I hid myself because I was naked. He doesn't say because I disobeyed you. He doesn't say because even I rebelled against the one command that you gave us. We rebelled against the one command that you told us we must never do. We know the consequences for that. Have mercy on us. Adam doesn't do that. The approach of God, I want to say this this morning, there are millions of people who hear God saying from the pulpits, in the scriptures, where are you? Week after week after week, 
who perish because they never come to God and they never say, Lord, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. There are millions of people that fill their heads with knowledge, who know the truth, who have heard the voice of, of God, have heard the voice of the Son of God, and respond exactly like Adam. I was afraid because I'm naked, because this didn't go right, because I had a bad childhood, because these people did this to me, because my husband was mean and cruel and didn't approve me and build me up, and my, my wife didn't give me the respect that I needed as a man, and, and so I went and I created a new relationship with someone that's not my spouse because I didn't get, because I was naked, because I, I didn't get approval. I didn't get the approval. That's, that's men and women, and, and believe me, I've had these conversations, I've listened to people for hours say things exactly like that. That is men and women responding just like Adam to God's approach when God says, where are you? I was afraid, I hid myself because I was naked, because this thing has happened to me, because it's come on me, not because I've sinned against you. Remember David when he comes to confess his sin to the Lord, and, and we talked about this, you know, he sinned against Bathsheba, he sinned against Uriah, he sinned against all of Israel, he sinned against his own children, he sinned against all their families, he sinned against everybody, and David in Psalm 51 says to the Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. David is everywhere. By the way, David is chief confessor in the Bible. If you want to see what we ought to look like as repenters and confessors, you look at David. Nobody repents like David. David is like, I've, I have more sin than the hairs of my head. Lord, have mercy on me. David isn't self I'm not that bad. David knows. You want to know what Christianity is, you look at David. You see how David responds to the approach of God. Adam responds to this approach by making excuses. He blames, shifts. Notice that God continues to question. This is very important. Um, uh, many years ago, I used to teach, before I was in ministry, I would try to teach friends how to see things in Scripture by asking questions. I found that to be very helpful personally until I came up against one of my friends who didn't like that, I realized. And I would often go back and forth. I'd say, now, what does this say and what does that say? What does that mean? And he would just say, just tell me. People don't want to think. Just tell me. Um, God comes in his approach to us with questions. Notice that. God comes with questions. Where are you? Verse 9. Notice verse 11. Who told you that you were naked? Notice verse 11 again. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Notice what he says to the woman in verse 13. What is this that you have done? The approach of God is a series of self-examining questions. God comes and puts us in the dock, and God says, I will ask you questions, and you will answer me. It's the same thing he does with Job, isn't it? Job, at the end of that long, trying to figure out what's going on, why am I suffering? I haven't done anything to deserve this. His friends were like, oh, yeah, you have. Elihu comes in, and he's like, you're all messed up. God finally comes, and God says, Guard yourself up like a man. Put your hand over your mouth. I'm going to ask you and you're going to answer me. Where were you when I made the foundations of the earth? Where's the storehouse of light? Can you tell me where light dwells? Where does water get stored in the heavens? I will ask you and you will answer me. When Jesus comes, it's the same thing that God does in the flesh, isn't it? When he addresses people, he asks questions. I'll ask you a question. You answer me. The baptism of John, is it from heaven or from men? Jesus is not going to be on dock. God is not on dock. God is not on trial. God will never allow himself except 
when he comes to redeem us and he puts himself on trial and he keeps his mouth shut because we have sinned and he must redeem us. But in every other case, God comes with the questioning. Now, I think we'll see in a little bit God's purpose in this is that he would bring Adam and Eve to a place of repentance, to a place where they would know mercy and grace and where they would know his redemption. God is doing this not simply to strike terror in the heart of Adam and Eve, but to draw out of them a confession of their sin. God, God's goal is always for us to confess our sin. God's goal in giving his word is always that we would go to him in confession. I love the way David says it. He says, a broken spirit and a contrite heart, these are the sacrifices, O God, that you will not reject. God loves when his people come and say, Lord, I have sinned against you. I have broken your law. I am so far from what I should be. I have become everything that I shouldn't be. Have mercy on me. But secondly, in order for that to happen, God begins with the questioning, and then in his approach, he moves to the curses. And all of this is kind of integral. All of this fits together. It is God doing this very systematically. God comes and he approaches. He knows that man's conscience is going to have fear and terror in the presence of God now that he's sinned against him. He comes questioning man so that man would see that he is on trial and that he must answer to his God. And then he comes with the curses. And now, Here's the magnificent thing. God never questions the devil. God never asks the evil one one question because God's purpose is not to redeem the evil one. God has no purpose. He says in Hebrews, he doesn't give help to angels. He has no desire in redeeming fallen angels. He redeems fallen men by his grace and mercy. He never questions the serpent, but he comes. Notice verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. Dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, um, understanding the three curses that we're going to look at here, the curse on the serpent, the curse on the woman, the curse on the man, is essential for you understanding the gospel. Everything that the Bible unpacks out of this, as Sinclair Ferguson says, is essentially a footnote to these curses and to the promise of redemption in Genesis 3.15. Everything else is just a footnote. The rest of the Bible is built on what God is doing with these curses and what these curses mean and what is the point of them. And notice that first, God curses in order in which creatures rebelled against him. Have you ever noticed that? First, he curses the serpent. Then he curses the woman. Then he curses the man. Why doesn't he curse Adam first? Adam was the federal representative. He was the head of humanity. He is the one in whom we fell, not Eve. We fell in Adam. He was the one from which Eve was made. He was her head and our head. He was the first representative. Why doesn't God come and curse Adam first? Why does he curse the woman first? Why does he curse the serpent first, because that's the order in which they rebelled against God. Satan left his proper domain. He was an angel of light. He was a glorious being. Paul tells us he was puffed up with pride, that he fell, that a litany of angels fell with him, that he is now the chief enemy of God, and he has brought destruction into the world that God created to show forth his glory, that he came and he, he led a rebellion against God. And so God deals, first and foremost, 
with the serpent. And notice he uses that language that carries with it the analogy between the animal, the serpent, the reptile, and between Satan, the devil. Notice the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. God pronounces a curse. And I think here we have to understand God is not specifically cursing the serpent, though I think there is an analogy. And I think this was a real serpent. I I don't take a mythological view like unbelieving biblical scholars do. I think that everything about this, when God tells us in verse 1, notice verse 1, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. God created the serpent. Satan used, as we saw weeks ago, he used that beautiful and magnificent and skillful of all animals to deceive Eve. And notice, God says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you, Above all livestock, above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. God is pronouncing defeat over Satan. God is coming and saying, I am pronouncing utter destruction and defeat. The idea of eating dust. Remember, Adam's going to go back to the dust. The dust is the place of cursing now. The dust is the place of barrenness and emptiness and uselessness. It's the place of worthlessness. There's no value to dust. It's the place of defeat. The psalmist will often talk about God making his enemies lick the dust. I think that's an allusion back to the curse on the serpent. And then notice that great verse in verse 15. God says that he will put enmity between the serpent and the woman, between the seed of the serpent and between the seed of the woman, and that there will be a war, and that there will, be, there will be casualty, and there will be injury. Now, what is this enmity? Now, at this point, Adam and Eve are enemies of God. At this point, when God speaks these words, they are at enmity with God. Satan, Adam, Eve are enemies of God. They are not on God's side. God is promising to put enmity between the woman and her seed and between the serpent and his seed, there is going to be a God-ordained, God-wrought enmity placed between them, which means there must be redemption, which means somehow man must be brought from being in enmity with God and be brought into reconciliation with God and union with God and somehow must be brought back into God's kingdom and then set at odds with Satan and his kingdom. That's what's being taught here. This is a tale of two kingdoms. Everything else you read in the Bible. Why is Israel going to war against the Philistines? Why is Israel told to enter into harem warfare in Canaan? Why are they told to wipe out the Amalekites and the Midianites? And why are they told to wipe out all of those inhabitants of the Holy Land? The only way to understand that is to get Genesis 3.15. God is putting enmity. All the nations outside of Israel in the Old Testament are representatives of of the kingdom of Satan. They are the seed of the serpent. The scriptures bear out the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent in the enmity that Cain, who is said to be of the evil one, shows toward Abel. Cain, remember, is going to be said to be of the evil one. He's the seed of the serpent. All unbelievers in this world who remain unbelievers, who will not turn to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance are the offspring of the evil one. Cain is at hostility with Abel. God would redeem Abel. Cain, John tells us in 1 John, was of 
the evil one. It is seen, that enmity is seen in the hostility of the world toward Noah and toward Lot. It is seen in the oppression of Israel by Egypt. It is seen in the conflict between Israel and the Philistines, as well as all the other nations with which they battled and were oppressed. While all of Israel was not savingly united to the Redeemer, the nation in the Old Testament was a type of the coming Son of God, and and Israel was the seed bed of the coming Redeemer. Therefore, it stood in the place of the seed of the woman in redemptive history. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was the typical seed of the woman. Jesus is the seed of the woman. He is the Redeemer. The word is masculine, and it is singular. He is the seed. This is the promise of the Redeemer. Through the Old Testament, the hostility between God's work in the church against the world with godly believers against ungodly men and women is an outworking of Genesis 3.15. And then as we come into the New Testament, the enmity is seen when the devil comes and tempts Jesus in the wilderness. Here is the serpent, and here is the seed of the woman face to face. Jesus has entered enemy-occupied territory by coming into this world. He has gone forward to the gates of hell, and he goes forward in battle in the wilderness. It is seen in the opposition. This is very important. It is seen in the opposition of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, and the scribes toward Christ, who said with John the Baptist that unbelieving Israelites were a brood of vipers, an offspring of vipers, seed of the serpent, And Jesus said to the unbelieving Jews who threatened him and questioned him, you are of your father, the devil. You are the offspring of the evil one. Finally, the warfare is seen in the world's opposition to the church after the resurrection and ascension of Christ. While Christ defeated the devil by virtue of his death on the cross, we await the full manifestation of the victory when Christ and his church will crush Satan under their feet in final judgment, Romans 16, 20. In short, Jesus' death on the cross was the victory. It was the culmination of the battle. It was D-Day, and Judgment Day is V-Day, when all that God has purposed and all that God has accomplished in Jesus crushing the head of the serpent by hanging on the cross and taking the judgment. Paul tells us in Colossians 2 that he disarmed principalities and powers when he hung on the cross making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in his death. Now, all of that and so much more is packed into Genesis 3.15. Everyone who is united to Jesus is the seed of the woman in Jesus. Everyone who has faith in Jesus is part of God's kingdom. Everyone who is unbelieving remains in Satan's kingdom. And God promises victory. Now, I think this is wonderful Because before God ever even comes to pronounce a curse on Adam or Eve, he promises victory. And, this is very important, he does so in the garden before he expels Adam and Eve out of the garden. That's magnificent. How full of grace must our God be? How full of mercy that before he even comes to pronounce curses, on our first parents for what they've done and what they justly deserve, he pronounces victory and redemption in the very place that he's going to redeem by coming as the second Adam, the seed of the woman, to bring that redemption. He gives them the greatest glimmers of hope in the garden. He shows that he is not only a God who is strict 
injustice, but that he is a God who is full of redeeming mercy. But notice that he comes now to the woman and then to the man. And what God does with regard to Eve and then with regard to Adam and the curse, what he does with regard to them is that he pronounces the curse on the very places that they were supposed to fulfill the creation mandate and where they were supposed to fulfill the dominion mandate to subdue the earth. It's very important. God pronounces the curses with respect to the very spheres in which Adam and Eve together were to turn the world into the garden. God told Adam and Eve, be fruitful, populate, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. He told Adam, tend and keep the garden, work it. Reproduction, population, labor. These are the two spheres that Adam and Eve were to do. They were to do everything to God's glory. They were to raise godly offspring. They were to then use the gifts and talents that God had given them in working to bring glory to God and to cultivate the world and to show forth God's glory and to do all that they did is unto him. And they were to obey God and they were to turn the garden into the world. They were to extend the garden out. And by population and cultivation, in obedience to God, seeking his glory, Adam would have turned the world into the new heavens and the new earth. He would have turned it into a garden paradise that was secured forever. And instead, God places the curse on those two places. He says to the woman, in pain, you will experience childbirth. Instead of the woman being fruitful and multiplying and fulfilling the creational mandate to have dominion through having children, the woman would now have children sadly made in her image and Adam's image. She would have, she would raise rebels. We see this from the first child that we're told in the Bible, Cain is a murderer. God pronounces the curse to remind her that she will never ever be able to fulfill the dominion mandate by having children. Let me say this this morning. I fear in the reform world, there are some women that think they are going to fulfill God's original purpose through mothering. God pronounces the curse on the place that should have been the place of blessing and fulfillment because God is saying that that no one will ever be able to do it as Adam and Eve could have done it before they fell. That, that, That now no fallen descendants of Adam and Eve will be able to fulfill the purpose of God. Now, I do think this is wonderful though. Before, Before God pronounces the curse on Adam, And before he pronounces the curse on Eve, he gives that promise in his curse on the serpent that the woman would bear a redeemer. Um, There are writers, and I think they're, they're correct, who say that God gives that promise that the woman would be the one who had the redeemer lest she had too much shame over the guilt of her sin. God is, in a sense, taking some of the reproach away from Eve. Eve was the one who was deceived. Eve led her husband in rebellion, and yet God is taking some of that reproach away. And and even before he says that she would have pain in childbearing, that that place of blessing would now be cursed, and, and she would never be able in herself to do what she otherwise would have been able to do, God will bring a redeemer. We'll talk about that in a minute. But notice that Adam also gets cursed in that place where he should have fulfilled the dominion mandate. Notice, notice this. God says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. 
Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, to dust you shall return. God is essentially saying to Adam, before the fall, I told you to tend and keep and cultivate the garden. It would have been easy. It would have been delightful. It would have been wonderful. Work is not a curse. Work is not a curse. It feels like a curse because of the curse. Work it was a blessing. Work was something to be delightful and good. Adam would have fulfilled the dominion mandate by working. And let me say this, every man, and you know this by experience, every man who's fallen in Adam is trying to fulfill the dominion mandate by his work and is frustrated and is frustrated and is frustrated and is frustrated because God has cursed the labors of men. He has said, now it's going to be burdensome. It's going to be toilsome. You're going to be frustrated in doing this. You're never going to be able to do it with ease and, and with the, the delight and the, and the pleasure that you would have been able to do it before the fall. The woman would have pain and childbearing. The man would have his labors burdened and cursed with, with thorns and thistles. There would be difficulties and trials and pain. Both would experience pain in those otherwise dominion-taking places. And I want to point out briefly, and then we're going to talk about redemption, that God does three things with Adam and the curse. He tells him he's going to sweat. It's going to be personally painful to him. He is going to have to work against obstacles and trials that are in the environment outside of him. His work is going to be cursed both within and without. And then he's going to die. You know, you almost think about the book of Ecclesiastes reading these verses. Futility, futility, all is futility. You get a sense that God's saying it's all going to be vanity now. It's all going to be futility now. And yet, and here's the important thing. Thirdly, God not only comes with the approach and the curses, God comes to redeem. Um, just as Jesus is the seed of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent, Jesus is also born of a woman. Remember what Paul says in Galatians 4, that, that the Son of God was born of woman, born under the law. I think there's an intimation in 1 Timothy where it says women, women will be saved in childbearing. That there's an intimation back to Genesis 3 that the Redeemer is going to come through a woman, that even though that curse has been pronounced and there's going to be pain in childbearing, there is going to be one child that is born who can fulfill the dominion mandate. There's going to be one person, a second Adam, who can come and can do what the first Adam and his bride can never do. He is going to come and he is going to get dominion over all things. And by his labors, he is going to get dominion. And here's the marvelous thing. Jesus comes and he not only, in a sense, removes the curse from the woman by being born of a woman into this world by taking a human nature on himself, but he comes to bring blessing, and he comes by taking Adam's curse upon himself. Jesus, as the second Adam, does everything that Adam should have done. And this is remarkable. When he enters in on the work of redemption, Jesus sweats great drops of blood in the garden. He wears the crown of thorns on the cross, and he dies, and his body's put in the ground. Jesus experiences every part of the curse. He is the second Adam. Have you ever thought of that? Why did Jesus wear a crown of thorns? Thorns were the symbol of the cursed ground. 
And Jesus came to retake dominion. No, Adam and Eve were supposed to populate and work to take dominion to bring God glory. And after the fall, not one of us will ever be able to do that. Not the whole church put together. If it were possible for the whole world to be Christianized, the world could not do that. The writer of Hebrews tells us there's a world to come, a new heavens and a new earth, that God intends to put under man, under us, if we're in Christ, but that we don't see all that yet, but we see Jesus. Jesus comes and takes the curse. Jesus comes and becomes the curse. Paul actually says he became a curse for us. He hung on the tree as a curse. He took the sweat. He took the thorns. He took the death. He redeems the childbearing. He takes the curse. He crushes the serpent's head. Jesus enters in and takes all of this to teach you what he's done on the cross. And the purpose is that you would say, yes, yes, I need the Redeemer. My soul needs such a representative. How can I ever find any sense that my work is worthwhile? How as a mother can you find any sense that raising children is worthwhile unless there's a redeemer? Unless there's a redeemer who now says, I will redeem children and I will redeem your labors and it's not in vain. And remember, because Christ is risen from the dead, Paul will say, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That means when you go out tomorrow into the work world and men you feel, and women, you feel the burdens of work, you feel the pain, you feel the frustration, you hate your job. How many of you hate your job? No, don't, no show of hands. <laughs> You hate your job. You come home to your wife. You're like, is it worth it? I don't even know if this is worth it. Don't tell me you haven't said that. I don't know if this is worth it. I feel like I'm just punching the clock. Is this worth it? And then you look at Jesus and you see that he has taken the curse and he's redeemed your soul and he's brought you back into fellowship and he promises you victory over the evil one and he promises you victory over your sin and he promises to bless you again and to bless your home and to bless your work and he promises to build you up and to use you and, and to show you his glory and he promises that one day you will crush Satan under your feet. Oh my, that is a great promise, isn't it? That's a promise you will not find in any book of the great promises of God. I challenge you to come to me with a book you found published that has Romans 16.20 in it. The great promises of God, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Oh, my friends, that's going to be a glorious day. Nick Batzig is going to get to crush Satan under his feet. I look forward to that day. That is going to be a marvelous day when all that he has done in this world and all the ways that he has attacked us and lured us away are overturned because of what Jesus has done. And on judgment day, we will judge the angels. Paul says, do you not know that you will judge angels? We're not, that's, that's hard for us to understand. We're so sinful. And yet it's not because of us. It's because of the redemption that we have in Jesus. We do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus who for a little while was made lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. That's, that's our hope. That's the biggest thing. I mean, I'm going to close with this. I know this has been long, 
But I want to say this. Genesis 3 is the most important chapter in the Bible and how God reverses the curse to bring blessing in Jesus is the most important thing any of us could ever hear and we need to hear it every day of our lives. I love how Paul says in Colossians about the gospel, he says to the church in Colossae, he prays for them with thanksgiving and he says, since you've um, first heard the grace of God in truth, which is bringing forth fruit in you since the day that you first heard it and believed. I love that. These truths are meant to bring forth fruit in you since the first day that you heard it until we crush Satan under our feet. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would take my feeble efforts at preaching your word and you would take your word and that you would bless it to our souls, that you would stir us up in a desire to know the one who came conquering and to conquer the second Adam who took the curse on himself, who tasted death for us that we might live. Lord Jesus, we thank you that when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. We pray that you would help us to feed on the Lord Jesus now as we come to the table. And Father, we pray that you would stir us up to understand more of the blessings that we have since he has become a curse for us. Father, please grant us the repentance that you long to see in our lives through the knowledge of Christ crucified and risen, who has all dominion and power. We pray these things in his name. Amen.